Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's episode of the returning fan favorite show, Armchair Producers. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man, the myth, the legend, and the eternal talent, Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. I apologize to our dozens and dozens of listeners um, all over the uh, Russian botnet um, <laughs> for our absence for now about three weeks. Um, we had some stuff get in the way, uh, including I finally managed to find a, a good source and acquire a copy of the uh, unspecified disease of unknown origin um, about three weeks ago. And... Um, I was in no condition to be uh, to uh, be doing the show, unfortunately, as a result of being very, very sick for a little while. And then I moved house yep. just, to, just to keep things light and airy and buzzy. I moved straight out of isolation, literally into moving house the next day because that's what I do. You know um, and that was exhausting. So we, I mean, you had um, to work stuff, like people actually expecting you to work for money um you know just... what i don't like that whole idea of having to work to earn money it's i don't think there's a future in it honestly no it's... i don't think i can do it anymore um it's <laughs> my own no bad of it a la um peter in um, <laughs> office space um but so we uh, apologize we are bringing it to you as soon as we can this will not be my normal uh version of uh the new uh, studio, um, electric uh, fry brand studio, or whatever we're going to call this one. Um, it's only about the fourth studio I've had since the last three years. Mm. But um, uh, unfortunately, the Moon uh, Age Daydream Studios. There we go. Oh, I like that. Um, we, we will not be, it's next door actually, but they're being, we had a booking, we had a double booking this week. You know, when you're as successful as our studio is, you have to put up with these sorts of things. So unfortunately, I'm using a backup machine. Uh, in a different room, so the sound quality and the video quality isn't potentially what our well is what we've come to expect recently. We what they would have come to expect when we began recording this <laughs> on, um, on on pretty pretty craptacular um, equipment, but uh, it is what it is, and we just couldn't not share our thoughts with you about what we've been up to for the last three weeks. Yeah. And we've, we've got a bit of a packed show, actually. So, obviously, we've got our chain review of the week. And the last time we did it, which was Mutiny on the Bounty, um, Travis chose The Guns of Navarone. Um, and it's been a while. We had to refresh ourselves on what actually happened because it's been a while since we watched it. Um, I have taken in two new releases on Disney Plus of Lightyear and Prey, the new um, Predator-based movie. Travis has checked out The Prestige, Who's That Girl, Trainwreck. We both checked out the new big movie on Netflix of The Grey Man. And I have got a little bit of a tease um, or a taster for my further review later on of Netflix The Sandman, as well as I finally experienced PlayStation VR. So I've got a few things to say on that one. Wow. I didn't yeah. know, that, know that was out yet. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Is this, is this the original one or is this the new one? Uh, oh, this is the PlayStation VR Model 2, but not PlayStation VR 2. Right, because I was reading something today that everyone's expecting that to drop next year. Yeah. They haven't uh, announced any more information beyond, yes, it's a thing. It's got OLED um, 
screens in the in the visor it's got head tracking it's going to be fantastic i'm sure um but it's probably going to end up costing about 900 dollars minimum so you're going to be spending more on the vr than you are on the console and they're probably going to be just as hard to get as the console. so that's if you can get your hands on one yeah which is the main problem um with most things these days hardware related yeah um, but you don't seem to have had that problem. I guess that's because you're in the industry. Well, <laughs> I managed to get hold of the PS5 purely because a customer walked in a few weeks ago and said, oh, I just saw their live online. I said, oh, excuse me. I ran out into the corridor to get signal and placed my pre-order finally. Like, yes, okay, now I can serve you. <laughs> uh, so maybe a little bit about that with the PS5. Well, you know, you got to take these opportunities when they present themselves if you really exactly. want one of these things because they are as rare as hence Steve still two years on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, should we crack on with things that we actually people actually yeah, do us for? Yeah. Should we should we start with the guns of Navarone? Let's do that. So the guns of Navarone or Gavin Navarone. I always thought it was Navarone. But um, yeah, I, I, I the reason why I say Navarone is purely because it's me trying to make Richard Richard from Bottom sound posher because he does this bit in it where he's doing um uh, charades and he's got a broken finger and his fingers sticking out like that and he's just doing this and going it's the guns of Navarone <laughs> I know that he's saying it wrong so Navarone I I guess is the right way of doing it I'm not really sure either way that's a very deep cut from a show that not many people remember um so well done <laughs> <laughs> the guns of Navarone is was made or released in 1961 mm-hmm. um, I believe it was the highest grossing film the year it came out um, it is uh, uh, in the Second World War, starring uh, some pr- pretty decent cast, David Niven, Gregory Peck, Anthony Quinn. Uh, they're your big-name actors. Richard Harris was our link to this film mm-hmm. from in the Bounty. Um, and the plot synopsis. A team of Allied saboteurs are assigned an impossible mission, infiltrate an impregnable Nazi-held Greek island, and destroy the two enormous long-range field guns to prevent the rescue of 2,000 trapped British soldiers. Based on a book by Alistair McLean, directed by J. Lee Thompson, who is a name that is not instantly familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was uh, has done some pretty famous stuff. Directed Cape, the original Cape Fear, and Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, which is one of the Planet of the Apes sequels, which mm-hmm. the original sequels, not the garbage ones they've released in uh, <laughs> in recent times. They're not garbage. I'm not a fan. Well, you're the commandant of the show, so you're allowed to have that opinion. Um, so I, we have sort of commented on this when we, uh, I selected it, but um, it kind of reminded us of Saturday afternoons, a rainy Saturday afternoons where you got stuck inside mm-hmm. and to watch the craptacular TV um, that was available to us when we were younger. Yeah. And somehow programmers in the UK and Australia seem to share a similar prerogative where it was Westerns and war movies that took up those rainy Saturday afternoons. And it did really bring back that feeling for me. But I think it underrated this film. It's actually quite quite well done. It's 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 a very long film. It's about two mm. and a half hours. Um, uh, I would argue too long. Uh, I'm not yes. entirely sure the story supports a plot. There really does. There's a whole lot of fat in the bone here. 
It's it, nice to know that um, you know it's a it's a tradition that Hollywood has had and will continue to repeat year on year on year. It's like people coming, oh, well, the directors these days of their long movies. I'm like, hang on a second, we just watched Mutiny in the Bounty recently. That thing went for almost three hours, and it was fucking boring and and did not need three hours. So yeah. it's cyclical. It's come back around again where uh, uh, untalented hacks like Matt Reeves take far too long to tell very simple stories. Sorry for Matt Reeves. Yeah, but they have to keep reusing the riff from Nirvana to really make it poignant and pertinent. Bring back the 90-minute movie for me. This one could have done with half an hour cut out of it. But um, what I guess one of my main takeaways from this film, which surprised me, was um, the really heavy anti-war sentiment to it. It was actually mm-hmm. fairly cynical about the process of a war and um, the way it's being persecuted by those in power, prosecuted, sorry, by those in power. Um, I just kind of expected a gung-ho, action-oriented, you know, great escape mm. war movie, but I didn't expect the anti-war message to be as mm. prominent as it was. It's definitely, you, you said about um, the great escape, which is, borderline celebration of the war and the the struggles and strife of um in a, in a very entertaining way of um prisoners of war um whereas this there is no celebration of it there's no it's everyone is cynical about their position in the armed forces going from um uh the the guy who kind of pulls everyone together at the very beginning um Oh, what's his name? Hang on. I'm going to just go and get it right now because he is quite a famous actor. Yes, uh, James Robertson, who plays Jensen, um, he's kind of cynical about it. He's very pragmatic with sort of like, yes, I know that they haven't really got a chance in hell to do this, but, you know, we've got to do it. And he's he's cynical and negative about it. And everyone we meet has got that kind of, I'm fucking tired of this kind of attitude. Um, but at the same time, it's like, but for the greater good, I'll fight on in my way kind of attitude, which is hugely controversial considering um, when it was released and the general kind of vibe and expectation of what a war movie was back in the 1960s and 70s. It was yeah these are our heroes this is the the greatest generation and all of that stuff let's celebrate them there's that, that's that cynicism about war didn't really <laughs> seem to at least seep through into the popular zeitgeist until it was you know the, the vietnam war era in the late 60s and early 70s right through to you know mm. the late 70s you want to talk about things like you know um oliver stone's vietnam films and yeah, the, the Deer yeah. Hunter. Even the yeah. first Rambo film is quite cynical about that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. um, um, but not common, I would imagine, 15 years after the end of the war itself. That said, though, I don't know how you could, could quibble with it, considering a number of members of the cast were veterans themselves, um, mm-hmm. including Anthony Quinn, who served in different roles during the war. I think he, he was in, uh, I think I read that he was in um, Albania or somewhere crazy like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was somewhere that it, it wasn't where you traditionally kind of expect war. Things to go on. <laughs> well, that's the thing about a world war, isn't it? You know, um, it everywhere. 
yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it tends to sort of break, a bit like um, the unspecified virus of unknown origin. Um, it sort of gets around. <laughs> um, Sir Anthony Quinn, Quayle, mm. sorry, not Anthony Quinn, I get the wrong wrong actor. Sir Anthony Quayle, who's in the film, mm. spent part of World War II in Albania organising mm. guerrilla forces. David mm. Niven wears a light infantry cap on his beret. This is the regiment that he was commissioned into in World War II. Mm. So um, uh, those are just the two... Um, I remember off the top of my head from reading about it tonight, but uh, a number of members of cast were actually veterans. So mm. if a bunch of actual veterans are starring in a film and saying war's a bit shit, you know, I don't know how you can go this that really, but um, yeah. it, it seems to have gone over people's heads at the time from what I've read, um, that uh, people seem to think it was just an action film. Um mm. That it kind of um, it kind of got missed in the mix that it was actually that undercurrent of anti-war sentiment, yeah. Which is why Gregory Peck apparently just agreed to do it, being a, a pacifist. Mm. Um, one question for you though is that my initial thought was like, oh, why is an American leading this um, delegation of British soldiers, our British and other European soldiers, uh, and no one's ever actually addressed that point. Mm. Um, apparently you were supposed to be British. Did you realise that? Yeah, I read that in the trivia, but it was just like, mm, no, I'm just not even going to try doing an English accent. Okay, fair enough. Own it. <laughs> uh, I guess so. And there were some pretty bad Aussie accents at the start of the film, I should note. Um, yeah, I think that was one of the ones that Richard Harris was trying to pull off. I think it might have been Richard Harris. And I'm like, oh, good Lord. I mean, again, there's probably a great deal of Australians living in <laughs> the UK or because um, this was shot on location in in the uh, near Greece somewhere I think um, yeah. um, where the fictional island of Navarone would have mm. been yeah, sure you could have found an actual Australian I guess but if they probably weren't as famous as Sir Richard Harris so um, mm. that's potentially why apparently the uh, character's nationality in the book was a Kiwi mm. um, even harder to come by. So, so essentially, this is a a little bit starts out a little bit like your heist film kind of setup, you know, where um, as you sort of said, uh, uh, what's his name again, uh, Robinson? Um, yeah. uh, Hang on, uh, James Robertson Jensen. Jensen uh, puts together a crew. You know, I would have really loved to have seen someone, you son of a bitch, I'm in. Uh, that uh, he puts together a a, a squad. Of, mm. of, of um, different sort of soldiers whose uh, task, as we sort of noted, is to infiltrate the the um, island of Navarone, controlled by the Nazis, which mm. has two radar-guided uh, super guns, you know, mm. that can, uh, is preventing the British Navy from evacuating 2,000 troops from Crete or something, because mm. uh, they'll get sunk by these guns, which, um, you know, uh, are basically defending the only way to get to these soldiers. Now, the reason why Gregory Peck is included and chosen to lead the mission mm. is the only, it's, the, it's discovered the only way to infiltrate the island is via a sheer cliff. Mm -hmm. And he is, you know, an expert mountaineer of sorts. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he is considered potentially the only person who could scale those cliffs. And uh, uh, those cliffs being unguarded by the Nazis start the infiltration process of the island. Mm -hmm. Anthony Quinn... Um, plays uh, Colonel Andreas Stavros, mm -hmm. um, who is Greek, I think, um, from memory. He's a Greek soldier, but he's like 
also a mountaineer of some description, of some fame, and is sort of portrayed as being um, sort of a rival, uh, I guess, or having a beef with... Um, yeah, um, <clears throat> I, I don't think he was a... Um, he was a competent climber, but I don't think he, there was another climber that they were talking about, but he was like six days travel away and they weren't able to do it because of this um, planned uh, British fleet coming in. So uh, Gregory Peck's character, Keith Mallory, is the only one that was close enough. The difference is uh, Stavros and Mallory have got this history where a mistake that Mallory made cost um stavros family and stavros found out and has basically got a a death debt as their debtor at the end of a war and this war is over i'll kill you this is a spoiler by the way we don't learn this until about two hours into the film so we've just spoiled a 60 year old film for you no it's not they talk they talk about it um like on the boat on the way in before it before the shipwreck is they talk about them having a beef we don't find out what it is until later right yeah uh, <laughs> you can spoil this movie. It's okay. Yeah. Um, but they have this beef as his aggro. We have the, uh, the knife guy. Um, we have the explosives guy. Mm-hmm. We have the young, handsome guy who was a bit of a um, bit of a heartthrob at the time who was trying to mm-hmm. sort of set him up as a self up as a serious movie star. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the really cool names, like the butcher of Barcelona, who's a knife guy. But they they actually kind of go a little bit further with some of those. Like the butcher, he is someone who's tired of fighting, and that was the whole reason that he was brought in. It's like, yeah, he knows how to kill people. It's, he doesn't it's, really want to kill people anymore. Yeah, it's almost like thinking about it and how the, each of these personalities had their kind of, this is the role that you're expecting them to play versus this is the the background and the the current psychological breakdown of these characters it felt a little bit like um kind of an or or um uh the um the bastards uh fuck what's it um glorious bastards glorious bastards yeah it was like um a polar opposite of that where they were very much celebrating the violence and they've got like the, the bear jew and things like that and he just loves destroying nazi skulls and things like that whereas these guys have got that same reputation but it's like nah, I'm done. <laughs> you know what it kind of it kind of did remind me a little bit of fox force five um <laughs> you know the, the knife guy you know the kind of yeah, yeah. Um, obviously not anywhere as, you know, as sensationalized, but I, I wonder ideas do tend to percolate through and mm-hmm. yeah, it's the kind of film that Tarantino would have watched. So maybe he pinched it from here. Um, but that's actually quite a nice element of a film, but there is a little bit of depth to these characters and mm-hmm. this get some backstory of these people that really existed. Um, on the boat base, they take a fishing boat to the um, a rundown fishing boat, attempting to try and conceal themselves as Greek fishermen mm-hmm. to the uh, to the island of Navarone, and they're stopped by Nazis on the way, a Nazi patrol on the way, and um, the, the butcher of Barcelona is lets a guy get away, uh, mm-hmm. you know, almost lets himself get killed because he refuses to, to finish the job and stab him properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that you can sort of see that feeds into the story later on, where he the, the group starts to lose trust in him, um, and it all adds to a, a little bit of a richer picture of who these people are. Now, side note: that sequence where the Nazi boat is interrogating them was utterly ruined for me because I saw Guns of Navarone for the first time 
after watching Hot Shots, part no. of the, where they parody it, and that it's, it's like going up against the Iraqi army or things like that, and they're going to try and destroy Saddam Hussein. It's just. I was just looking at the whole thing. It's like, this seems, oh, no. Yep, this is why this is familiar. (laughs) I can't take this seriously anymore. The real question is, what were you doing watching Hot Shots Part Dieu any time after about 1993? Because it's classic. (laughs) I do enjoy that scene where Martin Sheen and and, uh, Charlie Sheen are on the boats and they pass each other. I loved you in Wall Street. Uh, (laughs) um, Gosh, I can't believe I remember that scene. Um, (laughs) That's it's um we are due for part tray now I guess because after after after, um after Top Gun Maverick uh you know it's it's almost time for another uh, military parody oh no maybe Charlie Charlie would be available I'm sure um (laughs) so you um they successfully infiltrate the island they have Mm -hmm. a number of run-ins with Nazis. They pick mm-hmm. up a couple of guides who are played by uh, Greek women or Islanders, played mm-hmm. by, I think it's Irene Pappas and Gia Scala. Yes. Only to find out later, da, 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 one of them is a traitor. Rule of the game, never trust a local. No, interestingly, the way they, they find out that she's a traitor, how she's dealt with, mm. yeah. is they don't fuck around, right? Like, um... That was a great whole sequence as well. Mm. Uh, I always spoil it in case people want to watch it, mm. but the, her, she is executed yep. um, in an interesting fashion, and I liked that because um, I don't like seeing people get executed as a rule, <laughs> but um, in a war situation, you know, where, um, you know, I, I, I'm a bit of a – I actually have a degree in history and – World War Two was kind of my area of expertise. Like, you know, if you lived on an island like this, mm-hmm. you were caught collaborating with the Nazis. Yep. Trust me, if they would fuck your shit up fast and thoroughly. Yep. If you just look at what they did to the French women who were suspected of uh, sleeping with Nazis, they're not collaborating necessarily, just because co- just basically hanging around and sleeping with them. Um, they cut their hair off. You can find pictures of it on the internet. They wouldn't have hesitated in putting someone like that down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I it was nice, authentic touch that mm. they, they didn't. In the end, they did it in a way which was, I didn't expect necessarily, but it was, um, it was merciless, merciless. They really kind of took that hardcore edge to it. Um, you know, I, this is my first. I should also. This is the first time I can remember seeing taking a slightly different path here. Uh, I can ever remember seeing David Niven in. You know what? I'm going to look at his filmography and see which one was the first one that I saw. Because I think of him and I think of, yeah, Casino Royale, which was 67. So Actually, that... that, that would have been the first film I saw David Niven in because we watched that for the podcast about five or six years ago. Yeah, we did. It's fucking um, awful. <laughs> I'm now, I'm now wondering whether or not I should do my chain movie. <laughs> if it's, it'd be very disappointed if it's Casino Royale again. It's not Casino Royale. I promise you that. Um, he was original choice to be James Bond, I believe. Yes. One of our original choices before they went with Sean Connery was David Niven. 
And in this film, you can kind of see how they might have pulled that off had he been a little younger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was apparently all the actors in this film were considered much too old to be soldiers, and the yeah. press apparently made fun of him at the time. And I was like, I guess I, I don't know. Like they all seem not that old. I mean, they don't seem decrepit. Um, so I was like, oh, and it's like, oh, they're quite obviously too old to be soldiers. And you're like, ah, oh. I guess you, back in the sixties, you had a better idea about how old a soldier should be. Yeah, I guess so. Or well, maybe we just use the film stars making action films well into their 60s and 70s now. And you go, hey, no worries. Harrison Ford could definitely do another Indiana Jones film. It could be, you know, that long-awaited fourth film. No, he's he's too old. They shouldn't do it. No. No way. Keep it at the three. The three. They won't do a fourth one. They certainly would never do a fifth one, would they? No. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um but um, uh, it's interesting to see him in this. Like, I actually enjoy his role, and it's apparently it's a bit of a change of pace for him, mm. and not a role he was expected to do. But I, I found his um, his performance is sort of his cynical, sarcastic, uh, explosive British explosive expert. Um, he only needed to, he couldn't have been more British if he tried. He just needed to have a, a cup of tea in every scene potentially, and that would have helped. It's the pinky up at all times. <laughs> yes, maybe if he'd saying, you know. God save the queen a couple times. I don't know. It would have been God save the king, I guess. Then, but um, <laughs> um, with special effects won an Academy Award back in the sixties. Um, what did you think of the way the film looked? Overall, I liked it. Actually, um, I liked the because there was definitely it definitely felt to me like the production of how it was in the barracks and in the offices at the very start compared to when they were on the boat and then when they were scaling the the cliffs of Navarone or um, Navarone and and then the sort of like the 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 tree filled kind of grove that they kind of run through as they're being chased by the by the plane and things like that and then this uh the the, the wedding scene and things like that it it had this very, each kind of section had a look and it was designed in a way to help tell the story. Like the, the beginning military based, military based sequences felt very rigid and firm and there was an order to everything. And then the chaos of the, the ship just being just knocked around and Stavros out in the water and just being soaked and pulling and working on it uh, and just doing everything he could in the conversation. It's instantly kind of made you feel like, yeah, they're in our, they, they've been thrown into the deep end and it's literally a sink or swim scenario. And then the, the trial of climbing and scaling it, it did a good job of, physically representing the the journey the the metaphor uh the metaphysical journey that they each go on and i i did appreciate that i like you i think that it went too long but the production of it and the quality of how they use their environment and how they use that to advance the story was really quite good um you can tell i think the location shoots ended up costing a lot this film apparently cost about $6 million to make, which made it one of the more expensive films ever made at that point in time. Um, but it, it, it shows the locations feel 
real. Yeah, mm. It really serves the film that yeah. Yeah, it's been shot on location. It's a little bit like um, the Mutiny in the Bounty. You know, yeah. It was a terrible yeah. film, but the it looked great. Um, and the location shoots kind of cost them a fortune, but yeah. they paid, they certainly paid off on the screen and it looked amazing. The sequence of them climbing the, um, the cliffs, as you said, was shot on a, um, on, a, on a lot. So it was actually them climbing along the ground and they, mm -hmm. they did some practical camera tricks and trick and looked really good um, yeah. for its time. There's some shenanigans with the uh with a print so the original roadshow release used technicolor prints made in london which gave the movie eye-popping clarity and disguised many of the imperfections of the sets and special effects when it came to turn out mass runs of prints for general release columbia pictures shipped the original negative to a bargain rate lab in new york city where it was reconfigured for normal eastman color printing we spent recutting the negative to insert standard opticals to approximate the technicolor process, smooth dissolve, etc. No preservation separations were made and the negative wasn't properly protected. Poor quality dupe sections were soon patched in to replace damaged pieces of a negative. Eventually, two entire reels would have to be replaced in this way. After that, uh, the New York lab accidentally destroyed the originals through handling errors. Columbia Pictures also discarded the film's original sound elements and stereo tracks. A collector's magnetic print was used to recover the original four-channel stereo mix. So um, when you read about how they used to treat yeah. the actual film and, you know, the, the, the elements that made up the film, it's, it's, it's crazy that they treated their investment so poorly, but they almost felt like once it had run the cinemas for a few months, it was disposable. Yeah. Um, so in a way, I guess what I'm trying to um, demonstrate with that is we're quite lucky to have such a good-looking print still available today after all that shenanigans. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Wow. Um, would you watch this film? Would you, would you recommend this film to someone? Hmm. Yes, I think I would. Um, but certainly not to everyone. I think it's very refreshing, especially for... Um, the the stance it has on war i think it's quite refreshing if you are doing it as like if you were to do a um like a 1960s 1970s world war ii era movie marathon session it's a really good standout alternative piece to a lot of the stuff that goes out there um you know um we, we talked about um fuck it's just gone out of my head uh Great Escape and the other kinds of the other typical movies that you think of as war movies with that celebratory, aren't the British amazing and aren't the Nazis terrible people? Um, this is a nice kind of palate cleanser for something like that. But at the same time, it's, it's a bit of a slog to get through, partly because of the length and the pacing. I would actually kind of like to see a remake of this done with the idea of, okay, let's keep it, you know, less than two hours. Let's just refresh it and really, really go into it and make it a character piece. Um, I think that there was a little bit too much spent on the spectacle of it and it should be a, a real character study. Get some real good character actors in there and just let them, embrace it almost i ugh, it makes me feel feel really weird about referencing this but almost like a suicide squad style movie where you know the odds are against them but 
we we're in the the characters in spite of their many flaws and the scenario that they are in are endearing and you want to see them get through it's surprising you haven't seen anything like that i mean i know there was a sequel made in the late 70s which i don't know anything about and i haven't seen um but yeah you, you'd almost see something like this is, is good fodder for something like that i mean world war ii films they generally don't go out of style mm-hmm. um Nazis are great villains because they're not particularly morally ambiguous. Everybody hates the Nazi and you can do whatever the fuck to them and you're not going to offend anybody by sticking the boots into the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I would struggle to recommend it to people only because of its length. Mm-hmm. It's a very slow, languid pace of a story. Um, I think a lot of people would struggle with that today. But if, yep. you're, a bit, if you're a fan of World War II films, I guess, you're, I, I, guess I would and from it is an interesting cinema from a cinematic history perspective in the sense that like it was the highest grossing film of the year so it was a blockbuster mm. but it held that kind of really subversive message for the time yeah um, fairly obviously embedded uh in the story um which people dismissed um that i'm i'm kind of glad i've seen it now i'm like okay now i guess i know what all the fuss is about mm-hmm. um but i i i no, two and a half hours. That's a. It's, it was a very. It was a bit of a slog at times. Yeah, it's it's certainly not a slog in comparison to like the oh. previous movie of Mutiny on the Bounty or anything like that, or um, fucking Hamlet and the the other epic ones that I've accidentally chosen for us. <laughs> but yeah. it is still kind of like, okay, you could have easily trimmed twenty five minutes out of this movie and. It would have been the better for it. That sequence at the end, the explosive sequence, was really well done and really tense and really exciting. And mm-hmm. I just needed to kind of get through that stuff in the middle to, mm-hmm. get, to get to that. Like they got caught too many times, yeah. um, and you know, um, it's in the get oh, to. Man, we got him again. <laughs> just shoot them already. Just shoot. Them. <laughs> what you want to do? Um, you no. have captured their stunt doubles. <laughs> Oh, Mel Brooks. Hmm. What a treasure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you have the keys. I do. And we are going to follow David Niven. And we are going to go to a comedy. But we are not going to go to Casino Royale. We are going to go to the 1976 comedy crime mystery movie that is going to be incredibly controversial because of some of the casting and a lot of the content. But... It's going to be interesting. We are going to go to Murder by Death. Ah, okay. I've not seen this. I think I've even heard of this. Yes. Five famous literary detective characters and their sidekicks are invited to a bizarre mansion to solve an even stranger mystery. Now, this has got quite a cast for the day. It has got Peter Falk. It's got Alec Guinness. It has got Peter Sellers. It's got Ellen Brennan. And then it... Uh, obviously, we've got David Niven in there. We've got Maggie Smith. We've got Nancy Walker, Estelle Winwood. We've got James Cromwell. It's pretty well stacked for a few places for us to go from interesting stuff. Truman Capote mm-hmm. is in this film. I didn't think he was an actor. <laughs> it is. This is, this is going to be a really, really interesting one to go to because, for one thing, Peter Sellers very English gentleman pay, plays Sidney Wang. And yes, he is entirely playing an Asian guy. 
Right. Yes. So it is very, 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 very not good for modern social understandings. It's um, it's interesting. I was reading um, somebody, uh, like I said, an article about how um, what's his name? Um, the guy who plays uh, Frank Free. I can't believe I don't remember his name off the top of my head in uh, Breaking Bad and um, uh, Better Call Saul. Um, oh. Uh... <laughs> oh, I suck. Anyway, um, but he is apparently putting his hand up to play Professor X in any... Um, Giancarlo Esposito. Yeah, Giancarlo wants to play Professor X mm. in a future X-Men film. People are like, no, no, in the comments on Facebook, like, no, 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 has to be an actor who's in a wheelchair. Has to be a wheelchair-bound actor. Only a wheelchair... You know, you can't have an unable-bodied actor playing, you know, a wheelchair-bound Professor X. And you're like, wow. I mean, it's, it's all about what you are now, um, unfortunately. I mean, obviously, there are some things I tend to agree with, and you're like... Yeah, it's a bit shit having Peter Sellers playing a, an Asian character. I think Mickey Rooney played an Asian character, I think, in Breakfast mm-hmm. at Tiffany's. Um, that's probably not great. I think it was Emma Stone who was playing a Japanese character, I think, about 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, There's been the new controversy that James Franco, who apparently is out of actor jail in spite of the allegations and stuff against him, he's been cast as Fidel Castro or something. Yes, I, I did read that, and a few people are upset because he's not. Um, he's not. Uh, I don't know about that. Um, not that he's not Latino, just the fact that what's been reported that James Franco did. Mm. I don't know how anyone's going to want to work with him. Yeah, uh, seems weird to me. Um, but that's all. That's all. It's all. It's a different world these days, and you're right. You just not. You can't get a. Uh, the idea of Peter Sellers playing an Asian character, while on the one hand, I was probably very funny at the time. You kind of like, oh, I'm going to feel very bad if I laugh at that. Mm, yeah. And that's part of the reason why I picked it, but to kind of highlight how society changes. And it's good that it changes because stuff like that just really isn't right. So this is this is interesting. Going to be an interesting capsule thing. Peter Sellers kind of is a legend of Hollywood, given movies like Doctor Strangelove and things like that, um, and his legacy from uh, The Goon Show, where he was particularly famous for kind of starting what Mike Myers and Eddie Murphy and others did of just playing multiple characters and things like that. Um, he did it in a very interesting way, but it was very much the 60s and 70s where minorities and any kind of diversity that was not heteronormative was mocked. And it's going to be really interesting to see if one, any of it is okay. And two, it'll be curious to see if a movie such as this, disregarding the very overt nature of this character in particular. Um, if something like this could work today. I mean, I, I haven't seen this yet, um, but I'm expecting a Knives Out style farce. You're not too far wrong. You're not too far wrong. It's a little bit of kind of sitting somewhere ni- nicely between Knives Out and the Clue movie. Okay, which I've not yeah. seen uh, for a long time. Anyway. 
I, I'm like, I might have seen it a very, very, very long time ago. Oh, see, I'm I'm doing my best to work as to that because I really want to go back and watch that movie because it's so good. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, we need to get Tim Curry uh, and we're, we're there. Mm-hmm. Um, should, should we move on? Do you want to talk about The Grey Man, considering that's something we both had a chance to watch? So this is um, the newest movie by the Russo brothers, famous for um, finishing phases, the, the, the original um, Avengers MCU arcs with Endgame and all of the movies they did before that. This is their first big movie starring Ryan Gosling, getting Chris Evans in, and one of our favorite actresses, um, and the Amas. Yes. Um, in a interesting, maybe, story? Uh, it's, um, uh, yeah. Well, I would say it's a, a franchise starter, a franchise steed that they're attempting to put in here because I think that Netflix want this to be um, a bit of their... their Fast and Furious kind of series or something like that. Yeah, they've already been greenlit for a sequel. Uh, I was curious about this because I saw some very good reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, the involvement of Russo's. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, just on my Facebook um, from about five years ago, we had the original idea for um, and the cast for uh, Infinity War popped up. And remember, it was going to be one movie originally, and it had all those mm-hmm. people. And you're like, fuck, how are we going to squeeze all those guys into it? You know, always actors, always characters. And when they did it, you're like, it's fucking genius, really. Because, like, it would have been, I think we were all expecting to fuck it up. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, what have the Russo's done? You I mean, I guess when they got into Marvel, they did the Winter Soldier. But before that, they were doing community and stuff, right? Yeah, uh, the first movie that I remember of theirs was... Uh, what Hollywood? Yeah, which was just trash. Um, but they were doing TV sitcoms, and you know, uh, with Dan Harmon, which is uh, communities a fine TV show as, as sitcoms go. But like, then they're doing you know, m- epic and fucking great Marvel movies. And with a soldier, people mm-hmm. would usually put that in the, the top echelon of Marvel films. I mean, you know, then you're like, then they get the end game, you're like, wow, how did they do it? So, I was really, I was going in on this on the strength of, of their involvement. Um, I haven't loved a lot of Chris Evans stuff outside of um, Captain uh, America, other than maybe Knives Out. Um, and I don't think this changes my opinion. This film is very ge- powerfully, aggressively generic. Oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah. mean, it's one part born identity mm. with um, the flashbang of A Fast and the Furious throwing in the kind of I don't know the, the anti-hero wave that has been going through so much because you know Ryan Gosling seems to be making a, a bit of a career for himself and I love Ryan Gosling generally but he is definitely kind of found his niche kind of um character that he likes to play which is somewhat emotionally detached and he's, he's kind of becoming the new harrison ford it's like okay you know what you 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 are very happy doing this and you could do that really well 
and you don't want to do anything else. Okay, okay. Um, I, I found in addition to those sort of franchises you talked about there, you get you get sprinkle in some James Bond and mm. a healthy dose of Mission Impossible because mm. uh, it it was very Mission the set pieces kind of very Mission Impossibly. Um, I think the mm. action set pieces are where this film is probably at its strongest. Um, the scene, yeah, the set piece in Prague with a tram uh, mm-hmm. and the shootout around the tram was mm-hmm. pretty strong, pretty nicely done. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it actually managed to get me to take my attention off my phone and, and read it to watch the film for <laughs> five, ten minutes and then went back to it because they went back to the same boring shit they'd been doing since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. The hospital fight sequence as well I thought was pretty nicely done. Um, um, should we talk about it? I should probably, we never do this. We never, we're going to tell you about the plot just because you are. <laughs> I will do it in the style that I feel like Netflix wants us yeah. to Netflix. Six, a highly skilled assassin in the deep cover Sierra program of the CIA is the agent's best merchant of death. However, a mission goes bad, and now Six is on the run from the CAA with sociopathic former agent Lloyd Hansen hot on his trail. Aided by, aided by agent Danny Miranda and handler Donald Fitzroy, Six must be his most ruthless to avoid Hansen, who will stop at nothing to bring Six down. This time, it's personal. <laughs> Uh, that's well done. So it's just you hadn't picked it. Uh, Ryan Gosling plays mm-hmm. the agent, our hero. Chris Evans played Lloyd Hansen, our antagonist. Billy Bob mm-hmm. Thornton uh, phones it in as Fitzroy. And mm-hmm. Anna Armas, yet again, it's just an absolute joy to watch on screen as, as Danny Miranda. When are they going to give her her own movie? Yes, her please. own spy movie, please. Have you seen the trailer for... Um... What's an, uh, she she's starring as Oh she's Marilyn Monroe, right? Yes, Marilyn Monroe. I haven't. I've seen some stuff going around about some controversies about mm. whether she's the right colour blonde or something. I don't know what was the story, but I think it is, but I'm interested. I mean, yes, she's gonna have a bit of you know, her accent, but it looks interesting. I'm 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 aboard. She's a very capable actress, so I'm Definitely going to give it a try. And I mean, like, uh, actors usually are well known for doing, you know, accents. Uh, and it's directed by an Australian. Mm-hmm. Sorry, well, sort of Australian. Kiwi, you know. But, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah pretend I'm a foreigner. Andrew Dominic, who has done great work in Australia, uh, such as Chopper and Killing Them Softly. Um, and so, um, I would be interested to see that. Definitely. I would go and watch Anna de Armas read the phone book right now. She's in scintillating mm-hmm. hot form. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess she was the star of Knives Out. So, I mean, that's good. Mm-hmm. But, like, yeah. props to Ryan Johnson, who really seemed to pick her out of a lot. I'd never seen her in anything before that. Um, she, she's so good in this. And she's really mm-hmm. injects some energy and life into a film that's much needed because – Story about a secret CIA agent who's disavowed and they send people to kill him and he's a globe-hopping, globe-hopping secret agent who has to get the thing, to get the other thing, to bury his name and 
boy, haven't seen that before. Uh, it's a really, really fresh and original story. Mm -hmm. um, apparently written by one of the Russos and a couple other people. I was actually thinking to myself after the end, oh, why the fuck would this be the film the Russos choose to do next? I mean, mm -hmm. it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, I mean, it's so generic. I mean, other than the fact that I assume Netflix backed up a truck full of money to their office and said, make whatever the fuck you want, really. I mean, you know, you want to go blow up a tram in Prague? Cool. Um, I'm sure that's attractive. But then again, I have to imagine. I know, I think Marvel kicked them to the curb, if I remember correctly. Um, they weren't really keen on working for Russo's again, if I remember, because a bit of a falling out, I think, between Marvel and Russo's. I don't remember that, but it could very well be. I, I feel like... There was something that went on, but I, 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 I don't know. Um, I have to imagine they would be, they could have written their own check, basically. Oh, they yeah. write anywhere in Hollywood, anything you want to pick up next, mm -hmm. with the highest grossing film of all time under your belt. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you go and say, uh, I want to do uh, Professor Horatio Huffnagel's Fantabulous Contraptions, you know. Um, I want to yeah, finally get around to that Baron Munchausen remake I've had my own line. Um, <laughs> you know, but I want Terry Gilliam to direct because he always gets it right. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it'll work this time. You know, I, I mean, they would have got a they would have got a meeting with that yeah. um, where they would have got it made. You know, um, Terry Gilliam's curse would have hit. Um, so, but like, they could have done pretty much anything they wanted. In other words, yeah. I mean. Um, this is the one that they chose. I just mm -hmm. found myself a little bit puzzled about that because they've done a passable job. This mm -hmm. is a watchable movie. Mm -hmm. If you like mindless spy action movies, uh, you'll probably dig it. I had some friends of mine liked it, but it's, it's just not very interesting. It's not very original. It's not it's nothing special. I'm just not really invested in seeing anything more. I mean, it doesn't really set up the world very, very well. It's like, okay, so there's shadow, there's shadow parts of the CIA and they're doing this. So, yeah, so it's basically the Born Identity, but just done in a more arcadey kind of way rather than the brutal realism that was Jason Bourne series. Okay, sure. I, what so he goes back to work so what are we just going to have six going up against terrorists is it going to be another rogue agent what what are you going to do because honestly i don't see anything new the only outstanding part of this for me apart from adamas and i assume she would be working alongside six in any future gray man sequel was the character um Avik San, the, the, who is a, an assassin who is sent by Lloyd Hansen to try and kill Ryan Gosling, played by a, the Indian actor Danush. That's just his name. He's mm. a one-name actor. Um, not, I would imagine, particularly well-known to Western audiences. Mm. Uh, I haven't seen, I don't think I've seen any of his other work. Um, mm. If you're big into Bollywood uh, or Indian cinema, I'm sure you, he's probably... Mm. Bollywood, the Indian George Clooney, for all I know. Um, but he was fucking good. Like, he really nailed his fight sequences. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. especially, again, maybe that's what he's known for in Indian cinema. 
But I was like, I want to see more of that guy. Mm. I think and he was almost a breakout star. Yeah, and the way that he, um, even when he wasn't in fight sequences, the way he interacted with the other people and his kind of moral, his own personal code of ethics and how he does his job and things is like, that's interesting. That's compelling. The fact that, um, you know, the, the what he does at the end and kind of walks away and stuff like that. So like, interesting. That has given this character more depth. I like it. I, I, I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if they decided to do that because it was mm. felt fairly obvious. But I'm like, okay, Russo boys, you've got my um, you got me on that one. I'm I'm mm. interested in seeing more of Danush and his Avic San character. Um, I don't know if there's enough there to do a spin-off, but you'd probably bring him back for a sequel. Um, because he survived. <laughs> well, right. a Sorry. little bit. Sorry, I just want to talk a, uh, a little bit about the Chris Evans character, the villain. Before we move on to um, to Ryan Gosling, perhaps. Yes. Um. So this is Chris Evans doing something he doesn't do very often. He's being a villain. Um, and he's being a psychopath. And what do you think of it? He played a very Chris Evansy kind of psychopath. Um, I, I feel like he's kind of got one speed, Chris Evans. Like he reminded me of a character he played in Knives Out a little bit, but perhaps yes. a little bit less gay. Um, I don't know if his character was supposed to be gay in Knives Out, but like, he just set the gaydar off. That's all. Um, but um, it made me think back now to. The character he played in Scott Pilgrim, mm. which was kind of arrogant and over the top mm -hmm. as well. And I'm kind of like, eh. then we go back to Fantastic Four movies where he played, which we saw not so long ago, and where he played the, you know, over the top arrogant um, Johnny Storm, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Johnny Storm? Um, I don't know, Chris. I, mean, I was, it worked okay. It was a bit different. It wasn't your normal moustache twirling. <laughs> you know, like, um, but it was kind of the flamboyant, over the top, cocky, arrogant, frat boy kind of mm. psychopath. And I'm like, I think I've seen that done. You've done that a few times now, Chris. Mm -hmm. I was really bored with it. I liked the start where he had the, he still maintained a level of his own personal professionalism. Um, but at the same time, he was, it was a muddled character of, I wasn't entirely sure what he was supposed to be. Like, I think he was part previously part of the Sierra project, but he was let go because he was so psychologically broken and had no moral compass and things like that. I'm like, okay. So what, what, what is, what is his character? What it's, because he seems to just be purposefully kind of making a lot of mistakes and underperforming in every way. Um, but he's supposed to be an actual threat for six. I didn't feel like he was ever going to be a threat for six. He was just like someone that was moderately okay at fighting, but we never got a chance to see him kind of be a badass or anything. He wasn't sort of like intellectually brilliant at chess and things like that he, there was there was nothing like that it was just he was just an arrogant shit who had no morals yeah. you, know, you know what i found myself thinking of and maybe i was off base of this made me think of the man from uncle ruby you and i went and saw a few years ago with henry yeah. cavill, henry cavill and i forget who else it was but um 
Army Hammer. Army Hammer. Yeah. Speaking of people who are on the uh, the blacklist, did you see he's working now as like a um, timeshare salesperson in the Bahamas? Yeah. yeah. Um, turns out being a cannibal is a bad career move. Who the fuck it? But like, you may have those guys which are sort of handsome and we yeah. spoke but you know handsome and you know fight kind of well and that was kind of all they did yeah i just kind of found myself thinking of chris evans as a little bit in that category sort of unconvincing and just there to look good yeah yeah it was that kind of kind of cardboard cutout character yeah i don't know i don't know why it sort of made my head go there but like or henry cavill's character in that mission impossible movie he did where it, you kind of got the gig because you were Superman. It was kind of cool to see Ethan Hunt take on Superman, you know. Um, uh, Ryan Gosling, I was going to talk about quickly, is that you made a good point at the start of this to say that he's kind of settled into a comfortable comfortable sort of habit of doing these uninteresting action roles. When I think back to what I mean, we go back to some of the more interesting roles he did, which would be said Blade Runner. Interesting, but yeah, speaking of his new Harrison Ford, he did that film with Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. Well, one that I think I know I've I've always enjoyed, I think he's my favorite Ryan Gosling role, and I maybe it's out of five because I know you liked it as well. That was the nice guys. When he did with Russell Crowe, he was so different in that role and so good at the comedy. Yes. It was it was entirely different. And then the the next time that I saw him in comedy was uh, that one that he did with Steve Carell. And he wasn't actually funny. He was just somewhat of an emotionally divorced pretty man who had a lot of money but didn't have all of his ducks in a row and made foolish romantic relationship decisions. Is that the like, big shot? No. Um, it was... I'll look into it. Hang on. Um, is that, I, mean, I don't think he's done a comp. Is it not La La Land or anything? La La no. It was uh, big short no, uh, crazy stupid love. Oh, right, yeah. What did he did after Drive, which was the real that was his breakout performance for for Amazing Wolf Dream, I think. And what is he in that? He's reserved, emotionally constrained character, and he's kind of that's kind of what he's done for the rest of it, with the exception of the big short. Uh, the nice guys, and, and that's that's it. His his characters kind of stayed the same. Look, I, I liked him in 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 First Man as well a few years ago. Um, I'm fascinated to see him in the Barbie film. Fascinated to see this film. Like I've got, yeah, I, I think it sounds, sounds like a terrible idea for a film. But then again, I thought Lego Movie was a terrible idea for a film. Hmm. And that worked out really quite well. Um, and it's directed by, um, what's her face? He did Lady um, Greta Gerwig, who I like a lot. Uh, and, Mag- and uh, of course, Margot Robbie, mm-hmm. exceptional actor, who generally doesn't make bad choices. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm curious about this. I'm curious about this. I want to say, like, you know, is it, it's going to be one of two things. Is it the next Lego movie or is it the next Battleship? Yeah, 
But it's it's a really interesting cast on there because um, it's also got one of the standout actresses from a TV show on Netflix that I really liked, which was Sex Education, um, starring uh, Emma McKay and or Mackie. And she kept on having lots of people go, oh, my God, are you Margot Robbie? Because she does look a lot like her. She's in the Barbie movie. And she was one of the standouts in Death in the Nile. Um, yeah which is a bad movie, um, but she was good in it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really good. Kate, Will Ferrell, Kate McKinnon, uh, Simi Liu, who is uh, Shang-Chi, um, America Ferreira. Uh, I'm really confused by this movie. It's written by Noah Baumbach, who yeah. did Squid and the Whale, Marriage Story. It's, what the hell is this movie going to be? It's wacky. I got, I'm, I'm, anyway, we're off topic. This is not, but I'm fascinated to see it. I just can't wait to see it. I have no idea what this is going to be, but I think it's not going to be what we think it is. No, it's, it's going to be the weirdest fucking movie, and I'm so. I am this. down for it. I am down to see what this is. Yeah. Um, anyway, so I think that's kind of a, a, a consensual. Yeah. When it comes to the Grey Man, I don't really see interest in seeing a whole lot more about universe, but I think we will be. Yeah. Now, the last thing that I want to talk about that is a damning indictment on, and this is a warning. This is my first warning to Hollywood. So I've noticed it getting more and more prevalent. Stop using drones for everything. They use everywhere, weren't they? Everywhere. Oh my God. (sighs) Occasionally. Yes, it's great. I love me. I haven't seen the last um, Michael Bay film, but I've heard a lot of people say that he's using him a lot now in, in his work as well. But wow, it was a good call. They were prominent in this film. They were everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I get it. You can you can get your drone in and really pull out and do everything. Yes, absolutely. Use those tools, but don't over-fucking-use them. It's like a lens flare, man. You've got to use it sparingly. Yes. Oh, fuck. If... JJ Abrams uses lens flare with a drone. I'm just gonna <laughs> let's not give him any ideas because um, uh, I've I had to tell uh, Michelle. Unfortunately, people there will not be a Trek respective this week. Um, but we, I've been telling her to look forward to the JJ Abrams Star Trek films. So uh, yeah. Now but we um, do have a commercial break because it's just about that time. It is that time. It is that time. Yeah, I know people have missed them, but the, the Trek Perspective will be back next week, I promise you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We are building the Trek Perspective um, universal story, and eventually I'm sure that it will end up, you'll be able to come and experience it live at the Asta. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> so um, I've got a very special uh, a very special one for you, but we're going to start that again. Um, doing this with my backup computer, it's a little bit different than normal. We're a professional podcasting company. So do you let me know when we're ready? And I will press play on our, this week's, we have, oh. we, we have uh, exercise videos by John McSweeney, our sponsor. <laughs> Tiger, Tiger Moon. Savage beauty. Look at that powerful body. Strength, grace, magnificent form. 
how does the tiger manage to keep himself at the peak of physical fitness for his entire life? He doesn't lift weights, work machines, perform calisthenics or aerobics, and he doesn't jog, yet he can tear the head off a man. His power comes from his own exercise system, far different from man's, and also far superior. It is the ultimate exercise system, which I call Tiger Moves. Ironically, when man sets about to improve his health and physical fitness through exercise, he devises systems which lack the simple wisdom of the tiger. Low impact aerobics has far less injuries than high impact, as does belly dancing with its smooth and completely natural moves. Tiger moves, the best and most natural exercise system man can use. I'm John McSweeney, and I'm gonna cover seven of these basic tiger moves. Inhale back with tension, Exhale forward. Try to reach for the stars. Reach as high as you can. With tension. Great tension. Go forward with great tension. Feel the tension in the triceps muscles. Think into those thigh muscles, the quadriceps, the hamstrings. The next tiger move is the stomach roll. This exercise now from the side, I push down and roll up. Flex, force it down, come up. You've just learned in this tape three critical areas of life and self-defense. I'll leave you with one thought. It pertains to nations, it pertains to the individual. First a warrior or all else is folly. I'm stopping that right there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to need a vote, I think, on what, what, what sponsor so far has been the best slash worst. <laughs> I, think, I think the finished door opening one was my favourite. <laughs> I, I kind of like the, uh, the dance routine of No, No, Stay Away. Spare mm. me my life. Um, yes, they were good. Um, but you know, I, I saw the tiger moves and I thought our audience needed to needed to know they existed. So there they are. <laughs> like a tiger. <laughs> now, before we get too far away from Chris Evans, do you mind if I talk a little bit about Lightyear? Uh what's right? Lightyear, so go for it. Hmm. So Lightyear is the new Disney Pixar movie that has come out and it is now on Disney Plus and it had a bit of controversy before it came out because it had um, been edited by executives to remove a gay kiss and they got it was petitioned and became a bit of a social media move to get the kiss reinstated, which it then was, and the movie came out. I think there's also some fuss about the fact that Tim Allen's not voicing Buzz Lightyear. It was a bit about that, yeah. Um, but so Lightyear is a movie 
it well it's it is the movie that the action figure of Buzz Lightyear is based off of in the Toy Story universe. So it's the movie about a character from a of a character in a movie. Right. I think. And it is entirely pointless. Not gonna not gonna play with anyone right here. It is a waste. And it is a waste of an interesting concept. Um, because what happens in this, I'm just gonna bring up the official um uh synopsis. And it's after spending years attempting to return home, marooned space ranger Buzz Lightyear encounters an army of ruthless robots uh, commanded by Zerg, who is attempting to steal his fuel source. That absolutely disregards the most interesting part of this whole movie, which is the spending years trying to get home. Because they are part of Space Command, they're in a semi-colonization ship that is colloquially referred to as the turnip because it looks like a turnip and because of um buzz not knowing or feel consistently feeling like he doesn't need help and he's works better alone and all of that stuff um and he fucks up and the ship whilst trying to get back into space gets damaged and they crash and they're marooned on this um this this planet um and so they uh, awaken all of the the scientific bods that that are in the um in the turnip and they start building a base over the course of a couple of years whilst also trying to develop a, a synthetic crystal that they use to get to light speed which would then allow them to get home the problem with it is as they every time buzz goes up to try and to test the resiliency of the fuel the closer he gets to light speed time passes normally for him but it speeds up on the planet so it, when he comes back the first time four years has gone past and everyone's aged and it's really actually quite compelling and particularly um the story or the ideology of and the mission log or mission purpose of Space Rangers is always complete the mission. He chooses to make the sacrifice of being devoid from the rest of the people by being thrown up into space for him like every couple of days. But it stretches out longer and longer and longer over years and years and years and he sees his friends age and start having relationships and kids and the relationship is where the the gay kiss comes in and things like that um not with buzz but here buzz's friend um and it's actually really quite well done in a similar in a similar nod of quality to the opening of up where we see um the young carl as he is a child wanting to be an adventurer and he meets the girl and they age up and they become romantic. And it tells that lovely story with barely any words of this couple aging and separating and dealing with that love and loss. So it was a nice nod and it got me a little teary the way that it was done. Then he has the successful trip and he comes back and suddenly there's robots coming to capture him and blah, 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 and generic 
spacefaring action movie ensues. And it's boring. The emotional investment is entirely dried up. The quality of the animation is quite stunning. The voice acting, it's good. Nothing really stand out, nothing really bad. Um, and then they, then they do, um, I guess I'm going to spoil it. The identity of Zerg is revealed. And anyone who's watched Toy Story 2, where they have that typical I am your father moment from Zerg, Toy Zerg to Toy Buzz. Like, mm, they don't do that. They do the other obvious one. Um, and it's sort of like, okay, wow, you really ran out of ideas. And especially, this is supposed to be a movie that in the Toy Story world was so compelling and gripping and cool that it they made action figures for it. And it's, it's clearly I, supposed to be a big success, especially with the amount of Buzz Lightyear toys that we see in Toy Story that come in. It's really not. It's really not. It sounds like it was a disappointment. Yeah, it was. I wasn't excited for it. I felt like I didn't need a Buzz Lightyear origin story or anything like that. And um, I mean, it's because look at the director here. He's basically specializes in crap knockoffs. Um, Angus McLean. Hmm. Um, he made Finding Dory, which is a crap sequel to Finding Nemo. He made a um, a crap five minute spin off of Wall E. Um, mm -hmm. toy, two Toy Story shorts, and now this. Yeah, he's the guy. We talked about this um, before. How Disney mm -hmm. seemed to have pinched the A team and left Pixar with the dregs. Yes, is this uh -huh. a Pixar? This is a Pixar. I assume this is a Pixar release. Pixar. Yes. Um, there's there's nothing inherently wrong with it. But it's just less than this. This is just further evidence that Pixar have been brutalized for their for their teams, and the quality of the writers and the pressure of delivering a mo a Pixar movie every year has a hundred percent caught up to them. They are not anywhere near as flagship and industry leading than they used to be. It is tragic. They've got, you know, this movie has got Chris Evans' voice in it. It's got Peter Son, who I recognize the face of, but I don't know how or why. He's primarily a voice actor by the looks of it. He's one of the resident voice actors of Pixar. It's got Taika Waititi in it, but he's kind of being the typical Taika Waititi voice character that he seems to do. Um, you got James Brolin doing the voice of Zerg, and it's like, okay, sure, yep, that's definitely James Brolin's voice. Bill um, Hader in there as well. Yeah, in a in a, a Featheringham uh, Featheringham stand, and that's Bill Hader's better than the role that he was given, and it doesn't last long. And it's like, okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> it's it's just a waste. This, um, is, this is something that shouldn't have gone to cinema. This is this is prime Disney Plus material. It's 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 a wave of this, right? We 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 had the a few years ago. We had the solo film, the film no one asked for, and it was crap. 
Well, I never apologize sat there for it. You're all wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we had recently Obi-Wan, you know, which was crap. Like crap, you know, and again, there are apologists out there for it. Mm-hmm. Some, some Star Wars fans will take whatever they're given. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't need a solo film. I didn't need an Obi-Wan film. I didn't need a Boba Fett TV series. Mm-hmm. But as we know, it's just Disney's MO these days, right? They are going to mine their IP, their existing but mm-hmm. successful IP, for every possible cent they can get out of it. And no. it has no bearing whether it's any good or not. They don't mm-hmm. care because people... Well, this is why I get grumpy with Star Wars fans. Go, oh, no, no, I thought I cried during the end of Obi-Wan. You're like, no, it's garbage, and we need to call it garbage because otherwise they're going to keep serving as garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, same here with this. Like, we're going to keep selling people garbage under the brand of Toy Story. I thought Toy Story 4 was bad. Um, Toy Story 1, 2, and 3 were masterpieces. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing Toy Story 4, and I'm like, this isn't good. It's just—it's not awful. It's just not good. Yeah. Um, there so, is nothing wrong with leaving something alone. <laughs> um, right, like, right. you know, remember those crap Back to the Future films? And then they just like, why didn't they have a spin-off? What you know about Doc Brown's son and what he's been up to? That would have been fun, wouldn't it? You're you're missing you're missing the way to sell this. If you're going to do a spin-off of Back to the Future, it's Adventures of Einstein or Doc Brown, the Doc Brown Chronicles. How did Doc Brown get to be Doc Brown? Mm -hmm. It could be like Porky's meets Back to the Future. Um, Doc Brown, Doc Brown, the college years. Um, Needles, the Needles movie. How did we not get the Needles movie? Like Jesus, like. Uh, you know, there's so much content they could mine there. Stop it. You're a horrible person. What about the animated film about the DeLorean as a character? Mm-hmm. Uh, they could they could do the um, the so like six episode miniseries. What uh, what in time? Uh, you know, this the variation of um, parallel universes that happen because you know of accidentally stealing the you know time machine and stuff i mean oh well, what, if it, what if i hadn't fired eric stoltz <gasps> my god i actually in fact i've got it we just need to do a six-part limited series with doc brown as a sort of jason bourne character taking on the libyan terrorists <laughs> we've got to stop um, someone's out there pitching this, and when Bob Gale's dead and his kids own the property, that's what's going to happen. Someone's going to come in and do this. Um, stop it! No, why are you hurting uh, me? <laughs> this is this is that there is this is a, a horrible thing for for, yes. for entertainment, and I'm mm. not here for it. I'm not here for it. It's a bad habit that Hollywood repeatedly likes doing, and tragically. Nostalgia sells, which means that nostalgia usually en- ends up being an alternative word you can use instead of shit. I, I am out of it now. I think like um, uh, I didn't even finish season two of Picard. Mm-hmm. I have absolutely no interest. I've not seen the trailers for season three. I'm not interested in season three. And if you can't get me nostalgic about Jean Luc Picard, mm-hmm. you've done something very wrong to get us to that point. Oh yeah, oh yeah, uh, and I'm just 
I just feel incredibly cynical about everything. Everything, everything that Disney's making right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I have no interest in seeing Thor: Love and Thunder. I don't care about any of them. The fact that there are already memes saying I'm excited for She-Hulk because Daredevil's in it is like mm, that's not really a good reason to be excited for She-Hulk. I haven't watched any of Miss Marvel. I, I don't have. Oh, having just moved house, in fairness, I haven't had a great deal of spare time. But um, I, I, I excuses. Well, can I give you another excuse? So I'm going to give people a taster. For next week, we are going to talk in the Trek perspective about Star Trek Generations. Mm-hmm. As usual, I, being a benevolent, you know, uh, dictator um, of, of a bet, uh, a bet commissioner, if you will, mm-hmm. I, I allow a palate cleanser to happen after. Now, here's the thing. Michelle kind of liked Generations. So there's a teaser for you. Um, But uh, we, as a palate cleanser, uh, decided to watch a favourite film of her childhood, and it wasn't the pirate movie. We're going to leave that one for George. Um, (laughs) She is a big fan of Madonna. So we went back to 1987 to see Madonna's second feature role, Who's That? Well, basically her second, you know, star vehicle, Who's That Girl? Um, so have you ever seen Who's That Girl? I think I have. My my stomach clenched when you said <laughs> the name. So the life of an uptight tax lawyer turns chaotic when he's asked to escort a young new woman newly released from prison who persuades him to help her prove her innocence. Um, funnily enough, it stars Madonna. Madonna is that young woman who plays Nikki Finn. Um, the uptight tax lawyer is, play, is Loudon Trot, played by Griffin Dunn. Um, Griffin Dunn, if you look at his face, you'd be like, I've seen him in things. Mm. Um, like, uh, I instantly recognised him because a few months ago I watched a show called I, I Love Dick um, that starred um, the actor who played Agatha Harkness, Agatha in, um, in uh, One Division, Kevin um, Hahn, and it had um, Kevin Bacon in it. Mm. And Griffin Dunn's in that. He's significantly older. I'm like, wow, that's the same dude. Um, he was a very handsome young fellow. Uh, other famous names in here include Sir John Mills uh, in a small role. John McMartin is, a, is not a name many people will know, but plenty of people will know his face um, as being a well-known TV actor, I think. Um, and that's probably the extent of it. Um this is not a very good film. You'll be very mm-hmm. shocked and appalled to hear. It has a 4.8 on IMDb, a 27 meta score. That's pretty high for a Madonna movie. <laughs> um, I, I feel like um, Desperately Seeking Susan, which I believe was her initial uh, starring um, starring role, was a little bit better per, uh, received than, than this one. Um, this film, I feel like, is purely designed to be uh, a vehicle to to get her to make money and sell her albums. Because I think the film was originally going to be called The Slammer or something, until she wrote a song for her new album called Who's That Girl, and they decided to retitle the film as Who's That Girl mm-hmm. to basically, you know, benefit from 
um, her, her, well, sell more records, essentially. Yeah. Um, that's about as simple as it gets. Mm-hmm. Um, but and the film reeks like that. It feels like it's been written on a weekend. So Desperately Seeking Susan has a 6.1 and a 71 Metascore. So mm-hmm. a significantly better received film. Uh, it's 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 like a cartoon. This film, like Madonna plays almost a self parody of herself. It's almost like she plays. Um, she's got this high squeaky voice, but she talks really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, almost like if I don't know if they made, made a live action Betty Boop film, but if they did, I think she might oh. look and sound a little bit like that. Oh. Uh, and she, oh. the outfits she wears are kind of comical, uh, very eighties. Um, Loudon Trot, uh, played by uh, Griffin Dunn, is marrying a society, you know, a young a woman from, you know, a society woman whose dad is very rich. Mm-hmm. Um, his dad, played by um, John McMartin, is Simon Worthington, who has some sort of sketchy dealings with what got put Nikki Finn in jail. So the insinuation is that they're trying to kill her and that they need to make sure she gets on this particular bus to ensure it happens, or at the very least, they want her out of town. Mm. And so he enlists his to-be son-in-law to drive Nikki Finn to the bus station and make sure she gets on this bus. But from the moment he meets her at, to pick her up from prison, she basically takes over his life through being a sheer force of nature. Um, and she trashes his Rolls Royce and destroys his, you know... Yeah, almost derails and destroys his wedding and, you know, gets him arrested and almost killed on multiple occasions, all in an effort to try and prove that she was framed because they found her with a body in her the back of her car or something. And she gets out after six years. It's quite an effort. Um, mm. <laughs> I found this film really hard going. Like, I think if you have fond nostalgic memories of it, mm. um, it would be great. And you know, in fairness to Michelle, she watched this as a young kid. Um, you know, I could see how you definitely, as a kid, I think this film would have really lit my world on fire in the 80s. But mm. seeing this for the first time as an adult in 2022, you're like, oh, it's hard going. It just doesn't make, it's kind of, it's a really weird tone. It's, it's kind of farcical and ridiculous and silly. Silly mm. is the word. So uh, at one point, Nikki um, needs to, She's got a key that her boyfriend left her before going to prison. And she knows it opens a security box. But she doesn't know which bank and she doesn't know which box. So she tracks down this guy, a pimp, to who knows the, the bank and the box number for reasons. Um, and so there's a fight sequence in a, in a limo where she gets the box number by threatening the frame of a building, which she then does, um, uh, and gets the box number in the bank. Um, but the, 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 the pimp and his bodyguard who are, who are in a limo when it falls out of the parking garage into the bay okay. of the, in New York Harbour uh, survive. And so does the limo, apparently, because they're seen driving around with seaweed on it and they keep chasing her. So that's kind of ridiculous. But what's even more ridiculous is in an effort to try and, I don't know, um, track down Finn or coax her into a situation where she'll, you know, be able to like get their revenge on her they end up kidnapping all of the bridesmaids who are supposed to be part of Loudon's wedding okay. you know, they, they take his his bride to be hostage 
and eventually handing her over, swapping hostages. But they end up taking hostage all of the um, the bridesmaids who are contained by a very loose rope. They're all roped together as a group of about seven, six or seven women with a very, very loose rope tied around their waist as a group of seven. And so they end up jumping around following these people. And, you know, it's just... Okay kind of ridiculous and you're like i don't understand what's supposed to be happening here like the film <laughs> I, I don't know it's like it's a it's really weird fun travis <laughs> i guess so it just has this weird tone like it's it's obviously <laughs> not meant to be taken seriously but i, I it just mm-hmm. like, i it, you know where some film, films are complete fast if you look at something like um the naked gun or mm. hot Shot part two or something like that we mentioned earlier they are a parody, so they're ridiculous. It doesn't have to make sense that the plane in in, in airplane or flying high is a is a jet. But every time it's, if they have a propeller noises outside, or you know, the the, the um, I am serious. Stop calling me Shirley. You know, um, this is the wrong week to stop sniffing glue. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't need to make sense because it's obviously meant to be completely yes. over the top ridiculous. This film didn't quite succeed in telling me, you know, the, the film could communicate to you what is how its story is going to behave, mm. and it, it halfway through it starts behaving in a completely silly and ridiculous way, which just kind of threw me because I'm like, okay, I was kind of treating this like a semi-serious story, like a, mm. a comedy, but with a serious side to it. Mm. But like, like genuinely, Nikki was supposed to be in, under a threat of being hunted down by all these people mm. who see her as a threat but no it's just it turns ridiculous utterly ridiculous in the end it sounds, the, the way you've described it it sounds a little bit more like strangely a more absurd um what was it uh vibes yeah yeah, yeah more ridiculous like vibes is exactly kind of what i went expecting you know like hmm. it was a film about psychics who were hunting down a something in South America, if I remember correctly. Yes. But the chemistry between Jeff Goldblum and Cindy Lauper kind of worked. And mm. its tone was, yes, it's silly. Yes, it's funny. But at the same time, the threats are real. Where, you know, these characters could be killed by these bad mm. guys. Whereas this one is kind of just very silly. And you're like, okay, the bridesmaids are being hauled around by this pimp in a seaweed-laden limo that fell into New York Harbor. And they're held together by one single piece of rope, and any, any single one of them could take off in a second. And it's, yeah, um, uh, it, it didn't. His tone was funny enough for me. And um, the interesting thing about it for me mm. was the Madonna's character, Nikki Finn. A lot of times in this film, I found myself thinking, I wonder if Margot Robbie's seen this film a few times because I felt like some fairly. It kind of really reminded me of her Harley Quinn character from Suicide Squad on a number of occasions. Okay. The way she spoke, the way she acted, uh, a number of scenes kind of directly reminded me of scenes from at least the first of the Suicide Squad films with Margot in it. Um, and it was funny because I was, I was watching a, a special, I saw a series on YouTube recently about the Batman films, and they were mm. talking about the, the third Schumacher Batman film that was originally supposed to happen or, or proposed to happen was planned to have a harley quinn character in it hmm. and and at least you know uh, scuttlebutt at the time was that madonna was in line or has been talked about in that role as harley quinn 
So it kind of, it kind of, it's got a nice bit of synergy there. But if in the end that Margot ended up actually using uh, a, a a Madonna role as an influence on her um, hmm. Harley Quinn character, I can't guarantee. I, I, I can't say any knowledge she's an influence. It was just something that occurred to me while I was watching it. Hmm. Interesting. I'm just having a look at Margot Robbie's uh, trivia to see if anything comes up. Um, but I would say if you like Madonna films. Maybe you might enjoy this if you have a very strong nostalgic memory of it. What was Michelle's thoughts coming back to it? I think she still enjoyed it. I think it's a nostalgia trip. And you're gonna, you think about the films, well, very series of films you enjoyed as a young person. You sort of look back and go, "Oh, that wasn't particularly good, but I loved it at the time." Yeah, Three Ninjas. There you go. I know I had films from the 80s that I like, uh, and I'm like, oh, it's actually not a good film, but I just enjoyed it at the time. And I, uh, sometimes you go back and they don't hold up, but sometimes there's that pure this wave of nostalgia where the fact that I knew every single line in Wayne's World, line mm. for line, I killed And Wayne's World's probably not that bad of a film, but um, I think she enjoyed going back and seeing it again. Uh, and she... she Fashion in particular, I think, is an appeal. So um, if you like 80s fashion, if you like Madonna, mm. if you like music, you might find something there. Um, if you're looking for a coherent story and tone, look elsewhere. <laughs> now, do you mind if I talk about my next new release? By all means. Prey. This is the a new Predator film, right? Yes, new Predator movie. And I'm going to blow your mind right now, Travis. Because this movie has got a runtime of one hour, 39 minutes. Wow. Do they still do those? Yeah. I know. It's shocking, right? And you know what? It does a fucking good job. Is this a... Can, how connected is this to the previous? Is it, is it just set in the same universe? Is it a, so This is set 300 years ago from our time. It is uh, follows uh, Comanche, the Comanche Nation in particular um naru who is our um, protagonist she is a young kamachi wannabe warrior um she is very capable at many of the things um required of her for her tribe on the day-to-day -day basis she is particularly um skilled at medicine um but from very beginning she wears the um symbolic uh, face paint and um, we see her practicing with uh, with a, um, a, a, a throwable axe and things like that she is determined to be a fighter um, but she's not ready and this is a sticking point for her and she um, when things start going awry in the local area she feels this drive and this desire to go out and prove her warrior status. And her brother, um, Tabe, incidentally, um, this is one of the first movies to be majorly released with a, um, I believe it was a Navajo dubbing um, for, the, um, for the dialogue. And they do speak, I believe it's accurate, language for the time throughout a lot of it which is subtitled um but largely the version that i watched on disney plus was primarily english speaking 
Um, but we've got Amber Mid Thunder, who plays Naru, and then Dakota Beavers plays Tabe, um, who are the uh, brother and sister team. Um, and it seems like I haven't looked into it properly, but it does seem like they are legitimately Native American cast for this, which is very good. Um, this is directed by Dan Trachenberg, who did Ten Cloverfield Lane. And I was just having a look at his um, filmography. He hasn't done a feature since then. No. Nope. Um, and that was a really good film. Like, we all thought, what the fuck is this? How do you make a sequel to Cloverfield? And they did it, and it was good. Yeah. So he's um, done a very good episode of Black Mirror and an episode mm -hmm. of A Boy since, but mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of shocking with it. It's just only yeah. sure it's a like talent. But hasn't had a lot to do since then. Yeah, but this actually really does well because not only do we get a lot of nods to Schwarzenegger's Predator movie in characters very organically because it's a well-written script, actually saying lines from the Predator, uh, from the Predator movie, but do it, doing it in a way. And if you know the movies, you kind of go, ah, that's cool. But in the context of the scene, it still actually flows and makes sense. So they have that nostalgic touchstone really, really well done. Um, and But the, the main story is not entirely about Nauru versus the Predator, which is the ultimate climax of the film, but it is Nauru's journey from naive, cocky in a certain way, idealistic child who wants the the greatness and the grandeur and the allure of being one of the warriors of the tribe to getting her ass fucking handed to her on a new, numerous occasions and very very clearly being told that she's not ready and shown that she's not ready and her realizing that she's not ready and then being put in a position where it's fight or flight do or die and coming out ready and it it does that story so well that it doesn't actually leave too much time for the predator which is the way it should be the predator should be in the same way that chris nolan used the joker in the dark knight of he described it like like a shark where you occasionally just see the fin before an attack the predator for a huge portion of this movie is invisible using the cloaking so you don't really see it and then eventually as it is it stays in the area hunting smaller animals bigger animals bigger animals and then in uh integrating or encountering the human element primarily this um, comanche tribe and some french um people that have landed on the shores it's it slowly but surely gets that technology ripped away from it and you suddenly see it and it is a cool looking predator and it's got this sort of like skull kind of thing on it it's not the typical mask that we instantly think of from all the other predator movies there are other little nods to it like um in the final third of the movie she gets given a um a musket a gun which is actually what um 
appears in the or the the predator gives Danny Glover's character at the end of the the predator sequel and it's like there's very nice little nods like that to to tie it into the mythos of predator but again it's all done so well to serve the story of telling about naru but on top of that the fight sequence with the fucking predator is fucking cool and it doesn't waste its time in fact i would argue maybe a little bit rushed but still it does it doesn't feel overly rushed and there is a sense of agency and urgency to the the way that the story is told and particularly that sense of urgency and the pace of it 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 helps you actually get into the the mindset of naru where it feels a bit slow to start with and it's kind of frustrating because we're seeing the occasional corpse of an animal and signs of the predator's tracks and things like that and it's like come on let me see the predator and then the first time we experience the predator in the movie it's like oh, you fucking bastards it's, it's invisible it's really annoying and it gets you into the the mindset of naru who is impatient to be a warrior but she's not ready and by the time that she is ready we're ready to experience the predator they finally do the reveal and it's great it just everything about it serves the story and serves to tell a interesting story about the protagonist rather than the kind of glamour i suppose that has been draped around the predator's neck in every sequel that has ever been after the schwarzenegger one and the the bombastic nature of it that's not here they've the predator has obviously got cool advanced tech the fact that it's cloaking and sort of like um guided and returning arrow kind of things and stuff like that and it's got like the iconic three red dots that come in and that sort of stuff but it's this is kind of a not primitive predator but a less evolved less technologically advanced predator than we've ever seen and it's still a fucking threat and it's cool i recommend this movie and where are you seeing in australia disney plus disney plus in australia this is a holy it's production it's, it's their stars brand right um it's nice to see them get it right because um yes i think i was one of the five people in the world who liked predators Mm -hmm. yeah, the adrian brody film um uh but god that one they love the show when shane black went to it a few years ago oh that stunk yeah yeah that was not a good movie that was really disappointing from shane black like yeah we had yeah. such hot you and i remember that it was like we had such high hopes oh shane black's yeah. back on the you know being one of the original writers and no no nope. Just got it, it did not work out well for him so I this is one a nice 90, 98 minute movie, 99 minute minute movie. Sorry, my apology. Oh, wow. You know, I, I'm trash. It is a compelling story showing, highlighting a entirely different culture than we normally see. And usually if any Native Americans appear in a lot of movies, it's usually in somewhat stereotypical or dicey roles of oh yes this and questionable things like johnny depp being tonto and things like that it's like, this is actually just very much showing their life 
slice of life style of yeah they go out they go hunting they they do this they do that that's that's what they do to survive this is an ex an extreme thing that happens but at the same time everything that happens in the um in the tribe it's just what they do it's it, it is what it's the, just their life it's just a it's, it's a thursday <laughs> it was great it just represented it really well. I see. I don't really know anything about the the society, but it seemed to be respectful, which is good. <laughs> That's a plus. Um, yes. This is, I guess, the upside of what we talked about earlier. You know, like the idea mm -hmm. that you, you you work overtime to cast culturally appropriate people in roles. Mm -hmm. um, I'm assuming from what you're saying, if the performances were worth were enjoyable, or you felt they were quality performances. Um, definitely, uh, Amber mid thunder as Nauru, she was really good. Um, her brother was a little bit shaky, but got better towards the end. So I don't quite know what was going on there. It didn't, the shakiness in the performance didn't feel like it was part of the character, but by the end, he seemed to really understand the character much better and came across well. Um, Stormy Kip played uh what's up who is something of an antagonist he was pretty good actually kind of scary in his own right um but also tread a really nice line of us understanding his point of view on why everything that Nehru was doing was so frustrating because it was so different um and the predator played by dane de, de Ligero, um he was good and it was it looked like it was a lot of prosthetics rather than they certainly didn't seem to use any cgi i if they did it was on the mandibles those those classic mandibles um but it he was threatening, he was big, he was muscly, and he just looked like someone that could just pick up a fucking bear and things like that. So it it all fit. It was everything about the, the story, everything about the characters, they felt organic and lived in and realistic within that world. Very well done. Very smart. Impressive. I mean, as I was say, well, look, at the very least, so maybe this leads to bigger things for some of those guys. Uh, the star, yeah. if... Um... If nothing else, uh, you sort of said there, who really maybe for standout performance here, mm. um, that gives her a chance to get other roles and the other yeah. get they get a chance for their next role. And before you know, mm. it, maybe we have a Native American actor who is, you know, you know, like being you know head, at the Oscars or headlining major role, headlining major major productions there. Yeah, um, that'd be great. So that, is, that, great. so while it sounds like I guess maybe it's a little cynical later in the film, I, I do understand earlier in the show, I do understand why we're doing it. And it, it is mm -hmm. a nice chance for these people to get these people, the people who wouldn't normally get a look in. Absolutely. Yes. Normally, 10 years ago, you would have gone out and cast white actors or slightly, you know, um, you know, maybe even European actor uh, mm. in a role, as you sort of said, Johnny Depp playing uh, Tonto or even mm -hmm. Peter Sellers playing, you know, um an asian character or whatever yeah it would it would have been sort of like oh you're a famous um famous white guy can you tan up and wear traditional native american gear 
Did Daniel Day Lewis play in the last Mohican? Like, and isn't he? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that one doesn't sit well with me. <laughs> uh, he was that was he was lauded for that role, as I recall correctly. You know, yeah, um, <clears throat> you live in different times. Um, we don't. We're getting long, so and I know you want to talk about Sandman. I think, right? Well, I can always hold that because I've only watched episode one, so I can hold on to that. Well, um, I'll quickly talk about a couple of things here. Uh, I'll try and make a nitro. Uh, mm. A couple of weeks ago, <laughs> before I got the unspecified virus of unknown origin, um, I managed to finally get around to one of the top films in my pile of shame, and that film is The Prestige. Christopher Nolan. Oh, so I remember. I don't know if you remember, were two films about magicians came out about the same time. It was The Prestige and The Illusionist. Yeah, and a little bit like that time, that time when you went and saw we there was like Bloodborne and there was um, Overwatch, and you went, "Oh, Bloodborne's a game for me." And then <laughs> I was like that with this. I went with the Illusionist, and no one remembers that film, but everyone remembers the Prestige. What a mm -hmm. wonderful, wonderful film this is. I um, those who haven't seen it uh, from two thousand and six, after a tragic accident, two stage magicians in eighteen nineties London engaging battle to create the ultimate illusion or sacrificing everything they have to outwit each other. Uh, as you noted, uh, directed by Christopher Nolan, uh, starring Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman, uh, Scarlett Hansen, Michael Caine, Papa Parabo, Rebecca Hall, uh, David Bowie, Andy Serkis, uh, and Daniel Davis. He, of course, the butler from um, yes. The Nanny. <laughs> um and this does what a wonderful film this is it's it's uh, i just can't do it justice in a couple of minutes so i'm just going to say if like me you haven't seen this film go and see it get it hire it rent it steal it borrow it it's it is this is probably one of his best films i think uh, well i don't know you've seen it i imagine yes i would absolutely agree this was very much at a point where he was before he became incredibly self-indulgent. Well, in fairness, it's probably only the last couple of films he's really sort of gone into that space. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, actually, Dark Knight Rising was pretty self-indulgent too. Mm -hmm. um, people don't need to understand what Tom Hardy says. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, it, it's, I think... The best role outside of, of um, Wolverine I've ever seen Hugh Jackman play. Like, I am quite critical of that in the sense that I don't think Hugh Jackman's done many good non-Wolverine films. And Are you forgetting Caitlin Leopold, sir? I, I am including Caitlin Leopold in that. He, I not for one second did I believe he was a plucky advertising executive. Um, <laughs> Damn it, I was uh, going to say that before. Um, but, you know, he, Logan, of course, probably the best thing he's ever done. Mm -hmm. um he's made that role his own but mm -hmm. i don't know if he's done a whole lot else outside of that a bit like chris hentworth i don't think he's really done terribly many things outside mm -hmm. of thought very good mm -hmm. um so he gets an incredible performance out of him christian bale well obviously he's he's great he's great and he's the, one of nolan's guys mm -hmm. this is half the fucking cast of you know the batman films are in here one shape or form you know mark kane Again, another one of his regulars uh, who he loves working with. Um, David Bowie does a pretty decent job as Nikola Tesla. Yeah. I'm not sure. A bit like I was, saying, I was talking to Michelle on the weekend about how like Madonna tried to be an actor. I'm like, David Bowie tried as well. And I'm not sure he ever was a particularly good actor. Mm -hmm. He's quite good in this. Um, 
and just the central themes about the you know revenge and regret and mm-hmm. uh the twist at the end which i did see coming a fair way out um mm-hmm. I, I had that, that attack of you in my head going well i think i know what happens at the end um, <laughs> uh i was it, it was a much better film than the other magician film that i went and saw the ed norton uh illusionist um film which i've now happily forgotten but um i still like that movie I should go back and check that out now, actually, considering I, I'm being a little bit harsh because I am comparing it to a, a, a truly great film. Mm. It might just be an okay film. It's definitely more of a romance or a uh, a tragic romance story compared to everything else. Yeah. Well, I, I said I was going to go Nitro. I'm going to go Nitro. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't really do it justice in a couple of minutes. I'm going to say, wow, what a production. What a treat to have a film sitting there on your pile of shame from 16 years ago of that quality. Um, 16 years ago? Yes. Oh, fuck. Yeah, we're getting old. Um, <laughs> I went to a shopping I went to a shopping centre today in the west, uh, western suburbs of Melbourne and realised the last, I think one of the last times I was there was to see The Dark Knight 14 years ago. Um, um, I want to quickly talk about a new series that's getting quite a bit of a push on Stan here in Australia. I have no Peacock, I think, in the US, and it's called The Resort. Um, expanding, exploring love and the weird things we do in the name of it in case an elaborate true crime conspiracy. Um, our main stars are Kristen Milioti and William Jackson Harper. Kristen Milioti, most people will probably remember from Black Mirror, the USS Callister. Um, she was also in um, Palm Springs, right? Yes. And this is from the same people behind Palm Springs. Oh. Um, the Equium Jackson Harper, most people will remember from his role in The Good Place when he played Chitty. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also in Midsummer, if uh, anybody saw that, which is. Okay. If you haven't, you really should. It's very good. Um, uh, this is um, created by Andy Ciara, mm-hmm. um, who was the writer of Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, like, oh, I see the first two episodes of this, so I'm going to say what I'm going to say based on two episodes. And I think two episodes of, of a show, it's probably a decent a decent place to start to make up your mm-hmm. mind about what you're going to say about something. Um, and they're, they're fairly sizable episodes, 36 minutes or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. The, this is a, it's a pass. It's a big no for me. Um, so um, Kristen uh, plays a character named Emma. William plays a character called Noah. They are a couple. They are a couple whose marriage is in trouble. They are on a retreat to a resort to, um, I guess, just to get a holiday. But you can sort of tell their marriage is in trouble and they're kind of hoping to find some spark on the trip. They go to this beach on the holiday, and everybody starts getting really old really fast. And then all of a sudden they're like, hey, there's some aging properties on this beach. No, that was a different film about people going into a resort. Sorry. Mm. Um, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they um, Their anniversary trip to Mexico takes a turn when Emma finds an old phone in the jungle. Turns mm. out, um, well, that's a good point, Richard. Wanda took free to get to the properties, I guess. But I really, really enjoyed the first three or four episodes of that show. Yes. Um, like I was, a, we were the two people who were like, what's everybody talking about saying this is boring? This is fucking great. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the first five or six episodes of that show. 
Um, and then it kind of got a bit, and then Skybeam, and it kind of went, oh, okay. Um, but I guess the first episode was like, it was like, the first episode was like, okay, okay, you had my interest, now you have my attention. Um, uh, in, in one particular night, uh, Emma goes off on her own after Noah goes, falls asleep early. She, um, sorry, tell the line, so she, she, anyway, she finds a phone in the jungle, an old flip phone, an old Motorola Razor. And she gets it sparks her interest. She goes and buys a, a battery and a SIM card for it in the local town, gets it working. How a fucking Motorola raids if it's been in the jungle for the last 10, 15 years still works. I've got no idea that it did. And it, it turns out back then. And it turns out it belonged to a young guy who disappeared from the resort set maybe 10, 15 years earlier, only to find that the actual resort that he was staying was destroyed by a hurricane the day after. So his disappearance is never in resolved. Another girl disappears the day after he disappears, who was apparently unconnected to him. And again, because of a hurricane, her disappearance has never been resolved. And you're like, okay, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. And then episode two just takes the ball and goes, oh, what's a ball? Um, and <laughs> drives it around. It was like, had this super weird comedic tone. And, the, and they start bringing these really boring tropes about, oh, no, they're being followed by, you know, this, these people who work for this rich Mexican family. And uh, um, the tone, a little bit like, who's that girl? Like, what is this show trying to be? Are you trying to be funny? Because you're not succeeding. Mm. Um, are you trying to be mysterious and spooky? Because you're not succeeding. There's supposed to be a sense of menace here because you're not succeeding. It just... Uh, I don't know. I, 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 maybe I was a little bit too premature, but after two episodes of this, I was like, that's a no from me, thanks. Mm. Um, it, a really weird, strange tone. It has a 7.1 from 115 ratings, episode one. Um, that's uh, not strong. Uh, episode two has a 7.7 from 85 ratings. So it's not a lot of people giving it a, you know, it's got a 7.1 overall from 900 mm. ratings. I... Maybe other people, maybe it gets better, but like after two episodes, it was just starting to fucking annoy me. How uh, these two drunk Americans are running around trying to hide from guys with guns in a marketplace, and it was uh, like, no, I'm out. Well, uh, I, like I, only the first four episodes have been released at this point. Uh, yeah, I guess, but maybe look, I mean, 900 ratings aren't very many for a, no. for a, for a show on IMDb. Um, if I'm wrong, people. Get in touch with us, let us know. Maybe I'll go back and try it again. But two episodes were enough for me to go, not for me, thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the show, ladies and gentlemen, because I'm going to talk about The Sandman after I've experienced more of it, because it is Neil Gaiman and I will give it its fair dues, because I love the man. Um, and uh, maybe I will actually get a chance to actually do more things on PlayStation VR than just Beat Saber, which is in thoroughly entertaining and it's it is a fun game. Huh? it's a fun game oh yeah who doesn't want to just cut things up to it, green day and lightsabers yeah, it, it, it is it's a fun game but you're right maybe it, it was it well we'll talk more about this next week then we don't want to get ahead of it yes i've already got um another show that i, I will talk about next time it is another amazon show it is um paper girls 
There's been some trailers for it. It looks mildly interesting. I'm curious to see what it is. I would also, it's a teaser. As another, um, this last um, week, I got around to finally seeing A Million Ways to Die in the West on the assistance of Michelle, who said it was good. Um, we'll talk about whether it is or not next week. All right, there we go. We've got plenty of teasers for next week where we are going to be talking about our chain movie, Murder by Death, which um, is available to rent. All across the place. You can rent it on Google Play, YouTube, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft. There you go. So watch along as well if you want some very old, most likely highly inappropriate star-studded cast in a comedy. Uh, we talked about Guns of Navarone. Uh, we talked about Lightyear, Prey, The Prestige, Who's That Girl, The Gray Man, and The Resort. So a bit of a mixed bag of our thoughts on some of those ones. But um, we are back, ladies and gentlemen. We will probably be back to our usual Wednesday. It's just been a crazy couple of weeks for us, and... I've got responsibilities of work that have to... You get a reveal of my proper space next week, I promise. Uh, you know, you've got to get all of the gold um, uh, vinyl records on the walls and things like that for millions of the albums, all that stuff. All of that, uh, and I've got to be allowed out of my room. Uh, I swear to God, I'm not just in this room. Blink twice for help. <laughs> that, that's what we do for Michelle. <laughs> And yes, next week we will have the return of the Trek Perspective. Double Trek Perspective next week. We'll be talking about Generations and First Contact. All right. Well, in that case, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us this time. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe where you watch us, where you listen to us. If you're on Twitch, you can always subscribe and uh, donate to us if you really want to. We do really appreciate it. It certainly helps us. Um, yeah, at the Fried Brain and at Evil Trav on the Twitters. You can find us on Facebook and on YouTube. And the podcast gets uploaded on Sundays. Until next time, thank you and good night. Good night. <laughs>